The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether throne or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Our second reading is taken from the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16, starting from verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I, tell you that you, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever, bind, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven." Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Our last reading is taken from the book of Luke, Luke chapter 8, reading from verse 19 to 21. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Thank you, Jenny. Can I ask you please to take out the leaf that you're given as you came in? Uh, you'll see on the inside reasonably detailed outline of what I'm going to speak about today. You'll see all of the Bible passages that were read for us. They're all printed there for you and a few others. And you'll notice there are some blanks that you'll need to fill in as we go along. So grab a pen from in front of you and uh, you'll have some things uh, to help you concentrate. Uh, as you get yourself organised, let me lead us in prayer and we'll get started. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that it points us to what uh, your son is like and what he has done for us and why he is worthy of all our praise. Amen. Uh, well, as you know, we're in the middle of a short series on what the church is uh, about and what the church is to be like. Uh, you'll see on the top left of your handout there, uh, what we're covering in each of the talks. Last week, we spent some time reflecting on what the point is of church. Uh, church is to praise and worship God for his glorious grace. Uh, and next week in talk three, we'll get to what church should be like, which I know you're keen to get there as well. Uh, but this week, what I want to do is try and answer the question, whose church is it anyway? Whose church is it anyway? Because the question of ownership comes before the question of membership. The question of ownership comes before the question of membership. Uh, the answer that I'm going to give, it's pretty simple and profound. It's quite straightforward. It's today's big idea. The ch whose church is it anyway? The answer, 
The church belongs to Jesus. The church belongs to Jesus. And I want to show that in three ways before asking a couple of questions of application. So, church belongs to Jesus. Point one on your handout, top left, Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Pick it up with me again in Colossians chapter 1. This is the first reading that we had. There on your handout. Colossians 1 verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Point one, Jesus is the head of the church. Now, when someone's new to this particular church, they often want to ask questions about church leadership. Uh, Are there elders and deacons in this church? Who are the staff? How do decisions get made around here? I want to say they're all important questions, and we address all of them at Belong. Uh, If you're not busy after this, join us at Belong for lunch today. But the most important thing you need to hear about the leadership structures and governance and authority in this church is that Jesus is the head of this church. In fact, Jesus is the head of every church throughout time and space. Now, because Jesus is the head of this church, uh, that's one of the reasons why I am somewhat reluctant to identify myself publicly as the senior pastor, because in a real sense, that's who Jesus is. I say that when you consider his qualifications and his track record, what we just read in Colossians chapter 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. All things were made in him and through him and for him and hold together in him. And so actually when Peter will call Jesus the chief shepherd of the flock, the chief shepherd of the flock It means that any human leader is, at best, an under-shepherd to Jesus. What's the implication? Here's the first blank for you to fill in. If Jesus is the head of the church, first blank for you to fill in. So, we all answer to Jesus. We all answer to Jesus. Now, don't mishear me. Uh, It's right that we're accountable to each other as well. In fact, there's a website link there to our website. Uh, It outlines the ways in which anyone here can raise any concerns or any questions about any human leadership in this church. But if Jesus is the head of the church, then all of us ultimately answer to him. Now, if talking about Jesus being the head of the church sounds a bit hierarchical, perhaps a more relational image is that of a family. You see, in this church family, where God is the Father, Jesus is his firstborn son. Jesus is the firstborn son. And that means, uh, like in many cultures, Jesus, the firstborn son, he holds the place of supreme delegated authority from our Father in heaven. Now, as many of you know, um, it just so happens to be that I'm a firstborn son, Uh, of a firstborn son, of a firstborn son. So I want to say how good and right this is. No, I'm I'm just kidding. 
Jesus is the firstborn son because he is the head of the church. And what that means for you and I is that if you're a Christian, if you're a child of God, then if Jesus is the firstborn son, that means that he is our eldest brother or our oldest sibling. That's the idea behind Romans 8, which I've printed there for you on your handout. Romans 8, verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. You hear Paul's logic. If son is what defines Jesus' relationship to God the Father, firstborn among many brothers and sisters defines his relationship to you and me. And we're going to come back to what this image of church as a family looks like a little bit later. Uh, But for now, let me just say that the way you come into this family, the way you get into this family is by adoption. It's by adoption. Uh, You're not born into this family. You can't gain entry into this family by merit. You don't just stumble across it by random chance. Uh, That's actually what we saw in John, in the series we were doing just beforehand. I printed a verse there for you from John chapter 1. What John reminds us is that even though it feels too good to be true, the way you become a child of God, the way you get into his family, is simply by believing that God wants you here. So John chapter 1 verse 12, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Whose church is it anyway? Well, the church belongs to Jesus because Jesus is the head of the church. Second way in which we see that the church belongs to Jesus, point two on your handout, halfway down on the left, Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves the church. Um, Jesus, we've seen, he is the head of the church. He's also called the chief shepherd of the flock, but he is also the good shepherd who loves his sheep. He's not just the chief shepherd, he's also the good shepherd who loves the sheep. So, John chapter 10, verse 11, there on your handout, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And again, in Acts chapter 20, here the Apostle Paul is speaking to the elders of the church in Ephesus. Acts 20, verse 28, he says to them, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Jesus loves the church. He lays down his life for the sheep. And he bought the church with his own blood. And the reason why I kind of want to focus on that is because how much you value something is seen by what you're prepared to give up for it. How much you value something is seen by what you're prepared to give up for it. In Jesus' case, he gives up his own life for the church of God. Let me talk about a few implications. Firstly, um, as I said last week, for someone to claim, for a Christian to claim, my faith is just a private matter between God and me, my faith is just a private matter between God and me, so I don't need to bother with the church, I hope you can see that is utterly nonsense. That is utter nonsense in every way. You see, if Jesus laid down his life to purchase the church, you cannot ignore the church 
without ignoring everything about Jesus. In fact, without ignoring Jesus himself. Second implication. This is serious. Can I please urge you, never deliberately harm a church which belongs to Jesus? Never deliberately harm a church which belongs to Jesus. Let me ask you a question. How do you treat other people's stuff when it's lent to you? How do you treat other people's stuff when it's lent to you? Seems to me you've got two choices. Someone lends you something, either you treat it carelessly because it's not yours, or you treat it with extra special care, again, because it's not yours and belongs to someone else. And as I said, how much something means to the owner, that ought to shape how you treat it. Jesus laid down his life for the church. So let me urge you, never deliberately harm another church. And the third implication, um, at the very least, please resist the temptation to ever look down on another church. Please resist the temptation to ever look down on another church. Why? Well, because she belongs to Jesus and he loved her enough to lay down his life for her. Can I say, if there was ever a church you'd be tempted to look down on, it was the Corinthian church. You know, if you've read your way through 1 Corinthians, that this is a church that had major, major problems. Let me tell you about some of them. It was a church that was bitterly divided because there was a hero worship of their favourite pastor. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what that would be like in this church? In the name of inclusion in this church, the Corinthians boasted about the fact that there was a man in their church who was openly sleeping with his father's wife. It was probably his stepmother, not that that makes it any better, but they had a kind of immorality that even the pagans in Corinth balked at. Members of the church, we find out, they were suing each other in court as if my rights were more important than loving other members of Christ's body. And at the, church, at the church BYO lunch, some people were too poor to bring anything, but no one shared anything with them. Again, could you imagine what it would be like to be in that church? And yet, here's my point, please resist the temptation to ever look down on another church, because look at what Paul says about them in 1 Corinthians 1, how he starts his letter. Despite all that, I always thank my God for you, because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. Jesus loves his church, laid down his life for the church. So, finally then, here's a big implication for us. It's the blank for you to fill in. So, cherish the church which Jesus loves. Cherish the church which Jesus loves. Now, perhaps the most powerful expression of Jesus' love for his church comes in Ephesians 5, which I've printed there for you on your handout. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Uh, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. According to Ephesians 5, the reason we love the church 
It's not because she's always lovable. We love the church because Jesus loves her. And Jesus gave himself up for her. So she might become something truly magnificent. Did you notice what he said, what Paul says there? She might be radiant, without stain or wrinkle or blemish, holy and blameless in every way. We cherish and love the church because Jesus does. And I know that's not easy at times because church is so flawed and imperfect and quite frankly, unlovable. There was a book actually uh, a few years ago written by a Christian guy called Love Jesus But Hate Church. It's not easy. Church is full of sinners, sinners like you and me. But if Jesus loves her and Jesus died for her, that shapes the pattern for how we ought treat her as well. What I want to do at this point in the talk is actually pause. I want to pause and ask you how your attitude to church might need to change. I want to ask you what you might need to stop or start doing. It's a very personal question but it's a critical one. And so what I'm actually going to do is just pause for a minute or so and give you a chance to quietly reflect. Don't worry, this is not going to be one of those turn to the person next to you moments like we often do. This one's just for you. I'd love for you to pause and reflect on how your attitude to church might need to change. And I'm doing this not to burden you, but so that we might thank Jesus for his example and then ask him, to help us think his thoughts after him, that we might become more and more like him in every way. Okay, over to you, just for a minute, then I'll pray and we'll continue. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son who laid down his life to buy back the church. Please, we pray, give us the mind of Christ that we might cherish her the same way. Amen. Uh, Whose church is it anyway? Well, the church belongs to Jesus. He is the head of the church. He loves the church. Thirdly, over the right-hand side of your handout, Jesus will build his church. Jesus will build his church. Uh, If Jesus laid down his life for the church already, then nothing is going to stop him from building his church. Uh, That's what we saw in the second reading that Jenny brought to us from Matthew 16. I printed just a few verses there for you on your handout. Matthew 16, verse 17, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, 
And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will build my church, says Jesus, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Uh, Isn't that so reassuring to hear from the lips of Jesus himself? I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Uh, It's particularly reassuring, I think, given all the gloom and doom around the decline of the church in 21st century Australia. Uh, Yes, I understand we face big challenges and at times they can seem overwhelming. But however we Christians feel about those challenges, Jesus is pretty confident that nothing will stop him building his church. Uh, Not if he's already laid down his life for her and was raised again in power so that even death, even the gates of Hades, cannot stop him. Of course, the question is, how will Jesus build his church? Well, this is the mind-blowing privilege that he has granted to his younger siblings, to you and to me. And you see this in Matthew 28. This is the passage printed there on your handout. Famous passage, well known to Christians. Jesus is speaking to the first disciples. Here's what he says, Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. The way Jesus will build his church is by commissioning his first disciples to make more disciples. And by telling those first disciples to make more disciples, what Jesus is doing is setting up an ongoing model, a pattern, a program that will last across the generations to come and take the gospel to the very ends of the earth. You might say that what Jesus does is that he calls us not just to be disciples of Christ, but to be disciple-making disciples of Christ. Not just disciples of Christ, but disciple-making disciples of Christ. Now, uh, ever since I started in the role as, I was going to say the senior pastor, but I'm not going to say that ever again, ever since I started the role as the under-senior pastor, um, I've been thinking about our church's vision and mission statement. Uh, Many of you know from your professional life that it's usually one of the first things that a new CEO does. You probably also know that the end product of any such process usually doesn't look very different, uh, which is why one of the reasons why I haven't bothered to lead us through an endless brainstorming talk fest about our vision and mission. But actually, the main reason, main reason why I haven't done it is because Jesus has been and always will be head of our church. In a very real sense, nothing has or ever will change. Because the generations of disciples who are on the train before us and will be there long after we are gone, they know exactly what Jesus has been telling us to do since day one. How does this sound? Have a look at the slide on screen. We are disciples of Jesus, seeking to make more disciples of Jesus throughout our city, our state, our country, and to the ends of the earth. Well, implication, last blank for you to fill in on your handout. Implication, so get on board. So get on board 
Jesus sends us disciples to make more disciples. So get on board. And if I can say it this way, it is never too late to get started. It's never too late to rejoin if you've been on a break. And there are good reasons why that might have been the case. I say that because there is nothing more important to a Christian, to a disciple of Christ, than being fully devoted to building Christ's church, to making more disciples of Christ. Nothing is more important than that. Because it's what Jesus laid down his life to do, and nothing will ever stop him. So, pray for opportunities to make disciples. Then, look out for the way in which Jesus will answer those prayers, because that's what he wants to do. He wants to make disciples of all nations. And if need be, ask for help or training, because this is a mission to devote your whole life to, because Jesus says it will never fail. I can't think of anything more inspiring or reassuring to be involved in than something that I know is guaranteed to succeed. Whose church is it anyway? Well, I've tried to say the church belongs to Jesus. Uh, So, in many ways, it seems to me that the best name for a church is probably Christ Church. Don't get me wrong, Holy Trinity is pretty good as well. Like, I'm okay with that name. Uh, but Christ Church, that really sums it up, doesn't it? We belong to Jesus. A couple of applications then. And these are the questions on the right-hand side with which I want to try and tie this all together. First question is, how do we belong to Jesus today? How do we belong to Jesus today? Because to state the obvious, Jesus is not physically present with us. So how do we belong to him? I mean, after all, wouldn't it have been easier if... This week's weekly email update said, watch out for the traffic restrictions, and by the way, Jesus is preaching on Sunday. That would probably make it a bit easier, wouldn't it? So how do we belong to Jesus if he's not physically present? Well, what I want to try and say, and this is the third reading that Jenny brought to us, what I want to say is that if church is a family, then the way we belong to Jesus is by submitting to God's word. If a church is a family, the way we belong to Jesus is by submitting to God's word. Now, here's how I want to tie those ideas together. Look at the reading there for you from Luke 8, verse 19. Luke 8, verse 19. Now, Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they weren't able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. But he replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Now, for the record... Can I encourage you not to say that to your biological family very often, um, particularly your mum on Mother's Day? Because Jesus is making a point, though, about spiritual family, not about biological family. Jesus is making a point about the family where God is the father, Jesus is our eldest sibling, the firstborn son. And what he's saying is that what binds you and me together What binds us together is our willingness to sit together under God's Word. You see, that's the most basic description of church. It's the thing that's common to every single church. You see, everything else about a church, important though it is, is always secondary. It's leadership structure, the time that it meets, the style of worship. Those things are important but secondary. The most basic description of church 
The most fundamental definition of church is, printed there on your handout, church is Christ's people gathered around God's word. Christ's people gathered around God's word to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, at this point, uh, I want to remind us about the competition that I'm running at the moment. Uh, you'll see the details are on the top left of your handout. This is the competition that I'm running throughout this series. There's a series of great books on the topic of church, and I'm giving away a pack each week. Um, the competition questions you'll see there, uh, what do you love about church uh, to encourage each other, and what could you do to make church better to give feedback? Um, here's this week's winner. Um, the winner is Michael from our 6pm gathering. Uh, listen to what he says about what he loves about church. I love the commitment to study and discuss God's word. The times I enjoy church most is when we investigate God's word and help each other understand what it's saying and what behaviour I need to change in line with it. Church is Christ's people gathered around God's word to the praise of his glorious grace. Okay, don't forget to get your entries in this week and I'll give away another prize next week. Well, uh, like I've tried to do in this series, I've covered a lot in it and I will, but there are some things I won't talk about. Here's something I'm not going to mention because there's no mention of it so far. If church is Christ people gathered around God's word, there is no mention of church buildings. There is no mention of church buildings. Uh, to point out the obvious, Jesus makes no reference to church buildings in Matthew 28 when he sends out disciples to make more disciples. And in fact, um, I once heard a well-respected clergyman who ran a very well-known cathedral say that their church building was so important, so unimportant, so unimportant that it was no more than a glorified rain shelter. There is no mention of church buildings in Christ's plan to make disciples of all nations. What's the relevance for us? Well, I want to say to us, to our church family, for us, the upcoming site redevelopment, it is not core to who we are. I'll say it again, the upcoming site redevelopment, it is not core to who we are. Now again, don't get me wrong, I think this building is terrific. And in fact, this building has, for nearly 200 years, given us a wonderful base to make disciples throughout Adelaide. But you know what? We'd be just fine without it. And I say that because having a great building is no guarantee that disciples are being made, as evidenced by the very large number of very impressive but very empty church buildings throughout our country. Church buildings are not central. They're not core to who we are. And that's also the reason why I'm not particularly worried about what's going to happen to us when we go off-site for three years so that construction can take place. I want to reassure you, those three years that we're away from here, they won't be as good as now. And things will be so much better when we return. But what I want to say to you is that whatever happens for those three years we'll still be okay. We'll still be okay. Because for those three years, Jesus will still be the head of the church. Jesus still laid down his life for the church that he loved. 
Jesus still promises to build his church wherever we meet, provided we're gathered around God's word. Church is Christ's people gathered around God's word to the praise of his glorious grace. Uh, actually, what I wanted to do, I've been wanting to do this for a while, is to tell you a story about two members uh, of our 6pm gathering who I think have grasped this in a really profound and wonderful way. Uh, early last year, uh, one of them approached me and saying that she would like to start reading the Bible and pray with an older, more mature Christian sister uh, who might help disciple her. Uh, and so afterwards, I went and made some arrangements and ever since then, uh, these two women have been meeting uh, once a month on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, they meet in the office next to mine. Can I say that as they meet together to pray and to read the Bible, can I say they have almost nothing in common? They have no shared interests. They are at different life stages. And they have no biological connection in the slightest. But every time I see these sisters in our family, it brings a smile to my face. Can I say, it's never too late to start gathering with others around God's word. Um, my guess is that for some of you, particularly for some of the more senior members of our church, when you hear me say 6 p.m., you think, oh, that's for young people. Well, the younger one is in her 50s, <laughs> and the older one is nearly 70. Don't mishear me. Two people meeting together to read the Bible and to pray, it is not the fullest expression of church. It's not the fullest expression of church. Uh, and neither, to be honest, would they say so. Uh, because actually after they meet, they come to 6pm. And they join in a midweek growth group, each of them. But what they are doing one-to-one, -one, I think, so perfectly captures the essence of church. Of Christ's people gathered around God's word, to the praise of his glorious grace. I want to encourage you to take every opportunity you can to meet around God's word. And you'll see there's a little quote there for you. Um, this is from one of the books that I'm giving away in this prize pack. It's by a fellow called Carl Dienick. He's a terrific pastor from Tasmania. Here's what he says. Uh, what the New Testament models for us uh, is not simply hospitality, but spiritual hospitality. That is, meeting together in each other's homes, not just for food, but for the explicit purpose of being built up in the faith through fellowship over the word and prayer. Sure, it's great to meet house to house and have fun, watch movies, play board games, but it's rich beyond imagining to be able to engage spiritually with God's people around God's word. So, first question, how do we belong to Jesus today? Second question then, how do you belong to our church family? How do you belong to our church family? And I guess I just want to use that family metaphor one last time. You'll see I've listed a few things there. This is what we always talk about in terms of what it means to belong to this church. Uh, you attend a gathering every Sunday, uh, and ideally the same one each week. I say that because, again, using the family image, the first question that everyone asks when you turn up to a family event a family gathering is, well, where's so-and-so? Why aren't they here? So you attend a gathering every Sunday. Secondly, you join a growth group. Join a growth group. 
And in many ways, that's just for practical reasons. In a very big church, in a large extended family, you can't know everyone. But you can know some people well. And thirdly, you get involved in service. You get involved in service. Why? Well, because at a family event, at a family gathering, everyone pitches in. No one just sits around waiting to be served. How do you belong to this church family? Attend a gathering every Sunday, join a growth group, and then get involved in service. So, let me finish. Uh, I want to finish uh, like I did uh, last week with just a suggestion for next Sunday. Uh, You'll recall last week's for next Sunday was arrive early, leave late. Sorry about the road closure, but uh, arrive early, leave late. This week's, you see there in your handout, can I encourage you to pre-read the passage? to pre-read the passage. I want to encourage you to do that because the sermon is the main way in our church that Christ's people gather around God's word. The sermon is the main way in our church Christ's people gather around God's word. Now, don't miss me, it's not the only way in which we do so, and it's not the only time we do so. Even on a Sunday when we gather together, there are other ways in which we gather around God's word. In prayer... Uh, when the Bible is actually read, when we sing songs that declare the Word of God. So the sermon is not the only way, but it is the main way that our whole church family learns together more about what our God is like and why He is worthy of our praise. It's what we spend the most time on each Sunday. So really, I just want to invite you to pre-read the passage so you get maximum benefit. Did you know that on the weekly email that you get sent every week, you just have to click one button and the whole passage lines up in front of you? I only discovered that this week. It doesn't get any easier than that. Let me finish by reading a short quote to you from Jim Packer and his exhortation about what we might do before next Sunday. Have a look, it's on screen behind me. I'll read it out. Jim Packer. We should start taking seriously the sermons that we actually hear. We should pray beforehand for the preacher and for ourselves that God will prepare us for each other in such a way that, through the sermon, he may draw near to meet us himself. We should labour to be alert, expectant and attentive as the sermon is preached. We should be making notes, if need be, to ensure we remember what we are hearing and asking ourselves all the time what the message is showing us of God's glory or our own needs and shortcomings and of God's help for us in and through Christ. We should discuss the sermon afterwards with other Christians to make sure we saw the full point of it. We should meditate on it. Pray that God will bless to us the truth we found in it and start acting on any words of correction or direction in it that we know apply to us. This is a contribution to the upgrading of preaching that any lay person can make and it will be a happy thing when lay folk begin to make it. When should we start this routine of serious listening? Why? Next Lord's Day, of course. When else? Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that in it there is life. Thank you that it points us towards your Son, who gave himself up for us to make us holy and blameless. Please help us as your people to gather around your word to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen.